Neurology is a branch of medicine concerned with the study and treatment of disorders in the nervous system. The nervous system is a complex, sophisticated system that regulates and coordinates body activities. It has two major divisions, the central nervous system, which includes the brain and the spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system, which involves all other neural elements, such as eyes, ears, and skin. A doctor who specializes in neurology is called a neurologist. The neurologist treats disorders that affect the brain, spinal cord, and nerves. Neurologists don't perform surgery. If one of their patients requires surgery, they refer them to a neurosurgeon. Many neurologists also have additional training or interest in an area of neurology such as stroke, epilepsy, neuromuscular, sleep medicine, pain management, or movement disorders. Now we will discuss common neurological disorders, stroke, dementia, brain tumor, and multiple sclerosis. Strokes happen when there is a loss of blood flow to part of the brain or when a blood vessel in the brain ruptures and bleeds, which prevents oxygen from reaching the brain. Stroke is a leading cause of death in the United States. Every year, more than 795,000 Americans experience a stroke and only around 10% of them survive. Usually, early treatment and action can reduce brain damage and other complications. The common indicators of someone having a stroke can be memorized with a mnemonic FAST. The acronym stands for facial drooping, arm weakness, speech difficulties, and time to call emergency services. Many other symptoms include slurred speech, trouble understanding others, and loss of coordination and balance. There are three main types of stroke, ischemic due to lack of blood flow, hemorrhagic due to bleeding, and transient ischemic attack which involves a blood clot. Ischemic strokes are the most common, making up around 87% of stroke cases. During an ischemic stroke, the arteries supplying blood to the brain narrow or become blocked. Blood clots or severely reduced blood flow to the brain causes these blockages. Pieces of plaque breaking off and blocking a blood vessel can also cause them. A transient ischemic attack, often called a TIA or mini-stroke, occurs when blood flow to the brain is blocked temporarily. Symptoms are similar to those of a full stroke. However, they're typically temporary and disappear after a few minutes or hours when the blockage moves and blood flow is restored. Many people who experience this do not get treatment and often suffer a more major one within three months. Lastly, hemorrhagic strokes happen when an artery in the brain breaks open or leaks blood. The blood from that artery creates excess pressure in the skull and swells the brain, damaging brain cells and tissues. Strokes can be caused by tobacco use, inactivity, heavy alcohol use, and family history. Dementia is a general term for a group of symptoms that affect memory, thinking, and social abilities with everyday abilities. Several diseases can cause dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's is the most common cause of progressive dementia in older adults, but there are a number of other causes as well. Dementia symptoms may vary depending on the cause, but some common signs and symptoms include cognitive changes like memory loss, difficulty communicating, problem solving, and disorientation, and psychological changes like personality changes, depression, paranoia, and hallucinations. Dementia is caused by the damage or loss of nerve cells and their connections with the brain. 
This damage interferes with the ability of the brain cells to communicate with each other. Depending on the brain region damage, dementia can affect people differently, displaying different symptoms. Types of dementia that progress and aren't reversible include Alzheimer's, as mentioned before, and vascular dementia. While brain tumors and subdural hematomas are dementia-like conditions that can be reversed. Risks of developing dementia rises as you age, especially after 64. However, it can occur in younger people as well. Having a family history of dementia also puts you at a greater risk of developing the condition. There isn't a definite way to prevent dementia, but there are steps that might help, like keeping your mind active with mentally stimulating activities like reading, puzzles, and word games, being physically and socially active, and maintaining a healthy diet. Treatment of dementia depends on the underlying cause. There are medications that help manage symptoms for those that have no cure as research to develop more treatment options are still ongoing. Brain tumors are growths of abnormal cells in the brain. Your skull, which encloses your brain, is very rigid, and any growth inside such a restricted space is likely to cause problems. There are various types of brain tumors that exist, like benign tumors, which are non-cancerous, and malignant tumors, which are cancerous. Brain tumors can start in your brain or begin in other parts of the body and spread to the brain. The growth rate of a brain tumor varies greatly and the location determines its effect on the function of the nervous system. Signs and symptoms vary depending on the tumor's size and location, but general signs and symptoms may include headaches that gradually become more frequent and severe, unexplained nausea, vision problems, gradual loss of sensation or movement in the limbs, speech difficulties, and more. Primary brain tumors originate in the brain itself or tissues close to it, like the meninges, cranial nerves, or the pituitary gland. They begin when a normal cell develops mutation in its DNA, creating a mass of abnormal cells, forming a tumor. Secondary metastatic brain tumors are tumors that result from cancer that started somewhere else in the body and spread to the brain. These most often occur in people who have a history of cancer and are more common in adults than our primary brain tumors. In most people with primary tumors, the cause of the tumor isn't clear, but some factors are identified that may increase risks of the brain tumor. These include exposure to radiation and a family history of brain tumors. Next, we'll be talking about multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis is classified as an autoimmune disease where the body's immune system attacks itself. In multiple sclerosis, myelin sheaths that coat the nerve fibers in the brain and spinal cord are targeted and destroyed, or demyelinated, which decreases the transmission speed of impulses, sometimes even blocking the transmission. Effects on the body vary drastically based on the location of the damage, but commonly affects movement, vision, and speech. Examples of symptoms would be fatigue, muscle numbness or weakness, paralysis, blurry vision, loss of vision, and blurred speech. Some with multiple sclerosis experience a gradual, steady progression of the disease called primary progressive multiple sclerosis, while most experience relapses of symptoms called secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. Typically, MRIs, OCTs, spinal taps, and VEPs are used to diagnose it. 
Research shows that multiple sclerosis can happen at any age, but usually affects 20 to 40-year-olds and women. The disease is not hereditary, but risks slightly increases if a parent or sibling has the disease. In addition, some infections and other autoimmune diseases have been linked to the disorder. The cause of the disease is unknown and currently no cure is available for multiple sclerosis, but treatment can alleviate them from existing. Medications taken also depend on symptoms. Some treat movement, some treat vision, and some treat speech. Plus, there have been disease-modifying therapies like DMTs that are used to slow the development of multiple sclerosis and lower the relapse rate. Neurosurgery, as the name suggests, is the umbrella term for surgery of the nervous system to treat neurological diseases or disorders mentioned in the first part of the podcast. Those who perform neurosurgeries are called neurosurgeons. Neurosurgeons are often considered one of the most challenging, prestigious, and hectic surgical jobs, so they usually earn a higher amount of pay compared to other surgical specialties. Neurosurgeons should not be confused with neurologists, however. Neurologists diagnose and treat diseases relating to the nervous system, while neurosurgeons are qualified to operate, targeting not only the brain, but also the spinal cord and nerves and other parts of the body. Neurosurgeons perform surgeries such as craniotomies, ventricular peritoneal shunts, awake brain surgery, and stereotactic radiosurgery, which we will now talk about. A craniotomy is a type of brain surgery that involves removing part of the skull to access the brain. A craniotomy may be small or large depending on the problem. Craniotomies are usually performed under general anesthesia, but can also be done with the patient awake using local anesthetic. It may be performed to treat brain tumors, hematomas, aneurysms, traumatic head injury, swelling of the brain, foreign objects, etc. The bone flap is usually replaced at the end of the procedure with tiny plates and screws. In general, a craniotomy will be preceded by an MRI scan, which provides an image of the brain that the surgeon uses to plan the precise location for bone removal and the appropriate angle of access to the relevant brain areas. The amount of skull that's needed to be removed depends on the type of surgery being performed. Brain surgery risks is also tied to the specific location in the brain that the operation will affect. For example, if the brain area that controls speech is operated on, then speech may be affected. It also comes with general complications like um, seizures, brain swelling, pneumonia, and more. Ventricular peritoneal shunting, abbreviated as VP shunting, is a surgical procedure that primarily treats a condition called hydrocephalus. This condition occurs when excess cerebrospinal fluid known as CSF, collects in the brain's ventricles. CSF cushions your brain and protects it from injury inside your skull. The fluid acts as a delivery system for nutrients that your brain needs, and it also takes away waste products. Normally, CSF flows through these ventricles to the base of the brain. The fluid then bathes the brain and spinal cord before it's reabsorbed into the blood. When this normal flow is disrupted, the buildup of fluid can create harmful pressure on the brain's tissues, which can damage the brain. Doctors surgically place VP shunts inside one of the brain's ventricles 
to divert fluid away from the brain and restore normal flow and absorption of CSF. The location of the shunt is determined by the neurosurgeon based on the type and location of the blockage, causing hydrocephalus. Placement of the shunt is a very safe procedure. There are rare risks specific to VP shunting that can be serious and potentially life-threatening if left untreated, including damage to the brain tissue, bleeding in the brain, and blood clots. Awake brain surgery, also known as awake craniotomy, is a brain procedure performed while the patient is awake and alert. This type of surgery is used to treat some neurological conditions, including some brain tumors or epileptic seizures. If the tumor or the area of the brain where seizures occur is near parts of the brain that controls vision, movement, or speech, awake brain surgery is probably needed because the surgeon may ask you questions and monitor your brain activity as you respond. This will help your surgeon be certain that they are treating the correct area that needs to be treated and lowers the damage risk of your functional brain areas. If a tumor or the seizure-causing section needs surgical removal, doctors need to make sure that they aren't damaging other par important parts of the brain. It is hard to pinpoint these areas before surgery, so an awake brain surgery allows them to know which areas need to be avoided. Some risks of this type of surgery include vision change, seizures, memory loss, speech or learning difficulty, stroke, and impaired um, coordination. If you had awake brain surgery to manage epilepsy, improvements are generally seen after the surgery. Some people walk away seizure-free, while others experience fewer seizures than before. Occasionally, some people have no change in their seizures. If you had awake brain surgery for tumor removal, the neurosurgeon generally removes most of the tumor, but you may still need other treatments like chemo or radiation therapy to help destroy the remaining parts of the tumor. Finally, we will discuss stereotactic radiosurgery. Stereotactic radiosurgery is not your traditional incision type of surgery, but instead uses radiation therapy. The method is oftentimes used to treat the nervous system, suffering conditions like brain tumors and tremors, but also sometimes used to treat other parts of the body, like liver and lung cancer. The radiation beams are specific and precise, using 3D imaging techniques to direct high doses of radiation toward the targeted area. Each beam has little effect on the tissue it passes through, but produces the targeted dose of radiation at where they intersect. Because of this, the beams damage the DNA of targeted cells, so they're unable to reproduce causing tumors to shrink and blood vessels to close off over time, removing the tumor's blood supply. The surgery is relatively successful, with a success rate of about 85%. Going into the history of the surgery, stereotactic radiosurgery was first developed in 1949 by Lars Lexell, and since then, has been regarded less invasive and safer. Compared to traditional forms of surgery, the technique causes very little damage to surrounding cells and has a lower risk of side effects, reducing risk of infection, bleeding, or anesthesia issues. However, it still may cause complications like fatigue, swelling, and scalp or hair problems. It is rare that the patients experience other neurological problems months after the surgery. 
the subject matter of neurology and neurosurgery is fascinating, both to experts and non-experts. Our nervous system is the key player in controlling how we feel, think, and act, both involuntarily and voluntarily, in response to internal and external stimuli. In neurology, we discover that approximately 170 billion neurons are found all over our body, with around half in our brains. Understand how they work hand in hand with our many organs to diagnose and treat neurological diseases. In neurosurgery, we take a step further and try to cure such diseases through traditional and modern means, rather than just medication and behavioral therapies. So, both neurologists and neurosurgeons are crucial to treating neurological disorders. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you learned more about both neurology and neurosurgery.